If you have a Bible, turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 6. We are uh, finishing up Mark chapter 6 today. We're going to be looking at verse 45. We're going to read all the way through verse 56, uh, ending up the chapter, and then we will pray. So let's read this. Immediately, he made his disciples get into into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came... The boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. But when they saw, excuse me, I totally lost my spot. The wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people in their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, Villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God, I pray that the wisdom of these words and the the spirit-empowered reality of these words would hit us in the heart today where we need it. God, make use of this familiar passage. Help us to grow. Help us to see what you want us to see. And Lord, I ask that you would help me to communicate it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So a couple a couple things here as we finish up uh, Mark chapter 6. Um, the famous story of Jesus walking on the water is very similar to where we were last week, where Jesus fed the 5,000. It's one of those stories that everybody has heard. Uh, and not just Christians have heard it. People are familiar with Jesus walking on the water who don't believe Jesus even existed. Uh, this is a very, very familiar story. The danger of all familiar stories is a danger I list all the time, and I'm reminding you, the same way that I remind my children uh, to when they take off, now that I have several driving in vehicles, and I ask them to watch where they're going and don't you know, hit things, and I tell them that all the time. Parents, why am I doing that? Because I mean it every single time, and I wonder what they're going to do when they leave my line of sight. Not that any of them would uh, break mirrors off of cars. That's not something that might happen. So anyway, the reason I share that as a parent is I mean it and I want them to hear it. The reason I share it as a pastor is I mean it and I want you to hear it that familiarity with the text can cause you to go on vacation mentally. And all of you, we've entered in the holiday mode, so I already know that some of you 
may be tempted to look at your Pinterest thing uh, while we're having church, or you're shopping in your head, or you're remembering some deal. that uh, There's a million distractions. And if there's ever been an age of distractions, it's this one. They're everywhere. So don't go on vacation because you're familiar. Don't go mentally on vacation because you're familiar with this passage of Scripture, okay? There's my little pastoral admonition. So let's, let's get into what's going on. Remember last week, Jesus had just been, uh, had just done this incredible miracle, and there were over, we know at least 5,000 men, there was at least eight to 9,000 people. Some scholars estimate all the way up to 20 to 25,000 people. It was a lot of people that were fed out of the five loaves and the two fish. And what's interesting and we wouldn't recognize it or we'd gloss over it because the very first word of verse 45 is immediately. And since that word's used like 47 times, that's like the actual number in the book of Mark, you're like, oh, Mark just likes that word. So you might just skip right past the word, except when you go to John uh, and you go to Matthew, that it says the same thing in their parallel account. But what is really interesting is, what is he saying when he says immediately? He's saying he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him, not with him, but before him to the other side, while Jesus stays back and dismisses the crowd. So let's picture what's happening. Jesus has just done this incredible miracle. Everybody is recognizing this miraculous thing that has happened, including the disciples, and some reason, for some reason, Jesus says, all right, guys, get out of here. I'll take care of the crowd. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about why that would be, but if you go to the book of John, uh, chapter 6, verse 15, uh, it says a little more detail about what was going on because it wasn't just a crowd that was standing there astonished. Uh, John six fifteen says, that Jesus, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The crowd of people who witnessed the miracle got a little excited. And they all have this expectation, you've heard me say this a lot through the book of Mark, that there is a Messiah coming, and that Messiah is going to be a warrior king. He's going to be some kind of supernatural warrior king that's going to lead us out of the Roman captivity and bondage. They were looking for somebody to rise up and get all of the Jewish countryside up in arms, literally up in arms to go overthrow the oppressors and the overlords of Rome. And when they see this miracle, the same thing that happens when they see it uh, in the earlier chapters, they want to make him king. That is not what Jesus is here to do. He is the king of the universe, but he is not there to overthrow the Roman oppression. He's there to overthrow the sin of the world and the darkness that everybody is in bondage to. So Jesus does this weird thing where he sends the disciples away. Some people have speculated that the reason Jesus did that is the disciples themselves got a little swept up into the fervor. And it's very, very possible that they're like, okay, this, 
this has got to be it, right? I mean, guys, did you see what he did? I mean, we, we were holding physically the bread in our hands and it just kept multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. This has got to be it, right? And we know that that's where their mindset was because later in the Gospels, they ask questions like, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're, they're always thinking this way. All of them are thinking that way. They, they, did, they got it, but they didn't get it all the way through the ministry of Jesus. So whatever the, the text doesn't tell us, it does tell us in John what happened, but whatever the reason is, Jesus gets his disciples in the boat and sends them out. Very next thing Jesus does is he goes up on the mountain to pray. And one of the things I just want to point out, it's not the main purpose of the sermon this morning, but one of the things that you notice in the life of Jesus is a description of him getting up early before everybody else in praying. You've noticed that before. We've mentioned that before. But in crisis, there are multiple times where Jesus stays up late praying. So there's not a formula. There's just when the need is pressing, Jesus goes away to pray. He goes up on the mountain to pray. He did it in chapter 1. He does it later in chapter 14 uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he does it here in the book of Mark. He gets away by himself to pray. So this must have been more of a crisis moment than the text even makes you feel. It's like Jesus had this great miracle. John tells us they want to make him king. He gets rid of them. He gets rid of the disciples. He heads to the mountain to pray. So that brings us back to the disciples. They've been out there for a long time. Look at, look at what it says in verse 47. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he, Jesus, saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. John tells us, when you read in that account, that they were rowing. This is not a night for the sails to be out. This is a night where you have to put your back into it, and they are going against the wind, trying to to make headway where they're going. John also tells us that they were about three to four miles out. So Jesus sees them in the dark three to four miles out. Just like you could, right? In the dark, three to four miles out. I think that could be just an allusion to the the, the divinity of Jesus that he knows exactly where they are and he knows exactly what's going on. And this moment has set up something incredible that's about to happen. One of the things I, I try to think about, I try to put myself like I'm there with Jesus. So I'm, I want to be like the silent, pretend disciple that's there with Jesus in, in seeing all that. And if I'm out there, and it says in the third watch of the night, which means from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., and Jesus dismissed them around dark. So how many hours have they been rowing? At least six, maybe seven hours? Has anybody in here ever rowed against the wind for seven hours? No, the answer is no, you have not done that. Uh, and it would be exhausting. And you have got to think that if you're in that boat with the disciples, without Jesus, who's just done a miracle and dismissed you in a hurry, 
you've got to be thinking, where is he? What do, how is this? Is he going to meet us there? Is he taking the long way around? He's the rabbi. We know that. He's doing miracles. We know that. We ourselves have just done miracles. That was what we talked about last week. So we, we know we're a part of something great. Why did he do this? Why did he dismiss us? I don't know if you can make an immediate connection in your own life, but man, does that make sense to me. The feelings that we have frequently are, Jesus does these incredible things in our lives, these incredible blessings in our lives, and the moment that we are by ourselves or feel like we are, rowing against a headwind, the moment that that's where we're at, we start saying, where's God? Where's God and why God? Where's God, why God? That's the kind of thing that comes out naturally because what we notice are the blisters on our hands from rowing the boat. And we quickly forget that he just did this gigantic miracle. I'm not making this up, right? This is human nature. We easily, quickly forget and then eventually God swoops in and does some other great thing, and we're like, oh my gosh, why did I ever, ever doubt God? How many of you have been there? Just show of hands. And then, and then it just takes a few, maybe 30 minutes or so, and you're back to the disciple rowing in the boat, wondering where God's at. Jesus sees them. They're making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6, he came to them walking on the sea. I like how Mark just says that like, here's something totally normal. He came to them walking on the sea. Okay, let's say that again. He came to them walking on the sea. Now, I've seen... David Blaine, is that his name? The magician tried to do that, all that fake nonsense. Jesus is on the sea that is so hard, the headwind, that the disciples who are experienced fishermen and have spent lots of their life on this very sea, they're struggling to go do something they've done a lot in the past. And here comes Jesus walking on the sea. Look at the very next phrase that Mark uses. He meant to pass by them. What? Now, when I read that, my brain goes, so was Jesus, here's the boat, and he's walking. They see him. We know they see him because they scream in terror. But when they see him, does it mean like, hey guys, and he just kept like, not. is that what that means? He meant to pass them by? I'll show you who's in charge around here. Look at this. Is that, is that what's happening? I, I don't think so. I, there's, a couple different, um, there's a couple different explanations, but the one that really makes a lot of sense to me is that this is an intentional theophany. Does everybody know what a theophany is? Anybody want to take a guess at what that is? You, we all know what a theophany is once I describe it. A theophany is when God is manifested among people in a way that they can see him. 
happens in the Old Testament frequently, like when Abraham has the three visitors. We know one is God talking to him. The, a theophany. It's when God is in the midst of His people in a direct way that they can see. And the theophany, uh, the theophany here would be Jesus using, or Mark using the phrase, He means to pass by them in a way that would demonstrate who He is. Let me give you an example of the same kind of language uh, that's being used. Out of Exodus 33.19, it says, uh, and this is when Moses is addressing God. He said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. And then in verse 22, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Remember the scene where Moses is on Mount Sinai and he receives the Ten Commandments, and Moses wanted to see him, and, and God sticks him in the cleft of the rock, takes his hand, puts it over the cleft of the rock, passes by, removes his hand, and it says that Moses saw the back side of God. That's when he comes off the mountain. If you saw the Charlton Heston version, his hair is now white, his face is glowing, and everybody's scared of him and asking to put a veil over his face. Does everybody remember this out of the book of Exodus? But the language is, I will pass by you. It's the same language in 1 Kings when, um, when Elijah had the experience. Uh, I'm going to read you verse 11 of 1 Kings. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in an earthquake. Everybody knows how that one ends, right? Then a still small voice speaks to him. But the language, the theophany, the language being that God passes by in a way that shows he's greater than everything, all the elements, all of it. And Jesus in Mark is passing by them in a similar way to say, I am Lord over everything. Not, I'm just going to keep walking and leave you here. That is what I think that that is a reference to, him passing them by. But look at what the disciples' reaction was. Well, wait, before I give you the reaction, the other reason I think that that, that is a reference to, uh, to a, like an Old Testament theophany is look at what Jesus answers before we look at the disciples' reaction. Look at the end of verse 50. He spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. When you read that in Greek, what you are reading is Jesus saying, take heart, I am. That's what he's saying. That is not the normal way to say it. Now, translators will say, if you read the commentaries, they say it can be translated that way, but he's using the uh, ego ami, the, the I am statements like he uses in John chapter 8. When, they, when he talks about, I am the bread of life, and he says all of those things, and they get mad about uh, all the stuff Jesus is saying, and, and he says, I can make, uh, uh, God's able to make people praise him out of these rocks. And they said, you're, you're older than, uh, than our father Abraham. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. 
That is the same thing Jesus is saying here on the water when they cry out. He's saying, I am. So I, Jesus is directing them to look at him as God in their midst. That's the theophany. That is God showing up right here. But let's do look at the disciples' reaction. Uh, they're on the sea. They're tired. They're worn out. Uh, I was listening to a sermon from R.C. Sproul about this, and he said, these guys have probably already been yelling. Because <laughs> you just imagine on a boat trying to, not that way, this way. You're not doing, you know, all the stuff that guys would be doing, uh, especially once they're exhausted and tired. And then they see Jesus walking on the water, and they are terrified. They cry out. They thought he was a ghost. Do you know that, that the sailors of, this, of the first century, that they actually thought that when the water was stirring up and was, the waves were coming in and the storms were blowing and you were out at sea, they had legends and they had superstitions. And one of them was that there are demons and ghosts and phantoms that do this in the water. So guess what they were thinking? They were not good Christian fundamentalists. They believed in ghosts. They really did think that this was an apparition. Of, the Greek says a phantasm. They thought it was a ghost. And Jesus says, it's me. I am. Take heart. Be of good cheer, the King James says. It is I. Do not be afraid. This is the way God talks to all of us in the middle of whatever we're dealing with, whatever headwind we're in, he is always there saying, take heart, I am here. Okay. Look at verse 51. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. Not only does he walk on the water, but this headwind that they're rowing against, the moment he steps in the boat, the wind stops. This is the second time they would have experienced this with Jesus. Remember earlier, we've already talked about when he told the storm to stop. Here we are again, Jesus steps in the boat, and it stops. And then Mark records, and we talked about this briefly last week, Mark records in verse 52 something really, to me, it feels like coming out of left field. This is not what you would expect on the tail end of the story of walking on water. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. They were utterly astounded because they didn't understand that the loaves and fish miracle was pointing to who Jesus was because they didn't understand that because their hearts were hardened. Let me say that in reverse. Because their hearts were hardened, they didn't understand the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. And because they didn't understand about the loaves and the fishes, they were utterly astounded that the wind stopped when he got into the boat. Because their hearts were hardened is the problem. Because they can't see who Jesus really is yet, 
They have a suspicion, but they don't see it yet. Because they can't see it, that's why they don't get it. You and I think that if your friends that don't believe in God could simply see a miracle, they would believe. No, not necessarily. How many miracles have these people seen? Jesus is specifically instructing them. Can you imagine sitting under the teaching ministry of Jesus? You think He's not clear enough? You think He's not skilled enough? And yet they don't see. They don't hear. That is really important. They didn't get it with the loaves and the fish. and They don't get it even though the king of the universe has walked out on the sea. And then verse 53, it, it just moves on. And look, Let's just look at this. It's, they cross over, they land at Gennesaret, they moor to the shore, they get out of the boat, people recognize him, and he does what he's been doing. He does more miracles of healing throughout the whole region. People are bringing sick people to him, and this is just kind of a summary of some of the ministry of Jesus, and he does it again here, and that's how Mark ends this section of Scripture. But I, I wonder if you've noticed something that's missing out of Mark's story. Does anybody want to just throw out what you think might be missing? Anybody? Isn't there somebody that walked on water with Jesus? Where's Peter? Right? Where's the, where's the part about Peter? Does everybody remember that? Okay. It's not in here. Why is it not in here? Do you remember at the beginning of Mark, when we started this whole uh, this book of the Bible, that Mark is being dictated to, and has, he's recording the stories of Peter. Remember at the very beginning we said that Peter, uh, his involvement that you hear about in Matthew and Luke and John doesn't show up much in Mark. Peter doesn't want to display, he doesn't want to put himself front and center. Now the younger Peter probably would have, but the Peter who's talking with Mark in the first century to get out this gospel uh, rec written record, he's a little more mature, and so he doesn't want his part in there. But let's read Matthew chapter 14. So everybody turn to Matthew 14 so we can get the part about Peter because I think it'll be really important and tie everything together for us. Yeah, it's not like Peter forgot about the detail about that. Oh yeah, I totally forgot about that time where I walked on water. That is, that is not what happened. Matthew chapter 14, verse 28. Same exact thing. Jesus is walking on the water. Disciples cry out. They're terrified. They're scared. Jesus tells them the same thing. It's me. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat 
and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Definitely, when we get to heaven, would like to see the video of this. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out with his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I had this picture in my head of Peter telling this story to Mark. And when verse 52 was written, when Mark records, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened, that is, a, that is definitely Peter communicating a first-hand witness there who knew and felt the moment. And Peter is remembering that even with him walking on the water with Jesus, their hearts were still, they were still viewing Jesus as some guy that had miraculous power from God, but not truly understanding who he was. So I see Peter talking to Mark and saying, we didn't get it. We just didn't get it. We, we didn't get yet who he was. We kind of knew, but as of this moment, we did not yet truly get it. The reason we know that he didn't truly get it yet is in Matthew chapter 16, two chapters after this account, is when there is the famous moment where Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Jesus, they say, well, some say Elijah, return, and some say John the Baptist. He says, yes, who do you say that I am? Peter, who's walked on water with Jesus, who records in verse 52 that their hearts were hardened and they did not understand Something has happened between verse 52 of Mark and Matthew 16 in the story because it's not very far down the road, Matthew 16, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, well, I'm glad you finally figured it out. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, he had to have his eyes opened, and they were. But in verse 52, not quite, still have a hard heart, being drawn by the Holy Spirit brought into this discipleship of Jesus and still not fully getting it. The full revelation of who he was, I don't think they truly, truly got until after the day of Pentecost, but it's kind of this progressive 
revelation in their life. So I can see Peter telling the story to Mark and remembering that moment in the boat. We didn't understand about the loaves. We didn't understand that this is a description of the Messiah, the King of the universe, the Creator who can do whatever He wants, wherever He wants, however He wants. We didn't get that yet. We were still kind of hoping He was going to mount up an army and deliver us that way. We didn't get it yet. We knew He had power. We knew He had words like nobody else had. But we didn't really know who He was. But that was coming. There is a lot of encouragement for me in this. There's a lot of encouragement in me, and I want you to have this encouragement as well, for the people in our lives that don't get it yet. Or maybe some of you. The reason it's encouraging to me is that we should not give up on people who have not yet come to Christ that we know should know better. We should not give up in our effort to preach the gospel to them, to water the seed. We should not give up in praying for them. We should be encouraged to say, Peter didn't have it all figured out yet, but as time went on, the faithfulness of God was to open his eyes to truly see. And that is the way we need to be thinking about the world around us as we share Jesus with others. It also helps me in another sense to know that I don't know everything and neither do you yet about what God may be doing in your life and He will at the right time make that known. You know, a big, uh, a big danger we have is this feeling that God's got a destiny for our lives. That sounds funny to say, right? Because every time you turn on the TV, purpose, destiny, purpose, and it preaches way better than what I'm doing. I mean, you can make those sermons sound way better than what mine sounds. Purpose, destiny, purpose, you've got it. How do you get it? Well, I got a book. $25. Patreon. Motivational speakers everywhere. Purpose. Destiny. And it gives you the sense that there's this magical floating, you can see it out of your peripheral vision, thing that you're supposed to be doing, but you can't ever figure it out. You're always trying to get to it. I don't know if anybody's felt that way. Uh, so you're always trying, what does God want me to do? I'm doing all this useless stuff like work and raising families, totally meaningless, utterly unimportant things because I'm in search of my purpose, destiny. I used to be one of these people. Drove myself crazy, literally. Drove myself crazy trying to figure out what is it God wants me to do? It's going to have to be super specific. And I'm not saying God doesn't have a plan. He does. But we spend an awful lot of energy trying to figure out how to get where we're supposed to go. Really what we fig try to do is figure out what it is. What is it, Lord? Tell me. So we turn to these people who are much more exciting preachers with a much better 
thing to be selling, which is this idea of purpose, destiny. Most people never ever figure out exactly what that means. Because there's nothing in the Bible that talks that way. The Bible's got all this weird stuff like live peaceably among yourselves as much as depends on you. This strange stuff about working with your own hands and raising your family. This strange stuff about living for God, asking for daily bread so that you glorify Him in the mundane part of your life. Do you realize that you will shine much brighter as a light, as somebody who is faithful at work and faithful to your spouse and faithful to your kids and honest and have integrity and forgive those who are against you and seek peace and let your speech always be with grace and seasoned with salt, you will be a much, much brighter light for the kingdom of God than somebody marching around talking about destiny and purpose and I'm going to, and me, and me, and me, and me. You will go way further simply serving God. How does that tie into this? Because Peter didn't understand everything at first. The hope in that is, is that as you serve God in these meaningless, mundane, terrible things like going to work and being a good employee, being a good husband and being a good wife, raising your children, you know, totally, utterly worthless things that don't seem all that exciting. As you do that, as unto the Lord, seeking to faithfully serve Him, God leads you in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Psalm 23. God has your times in His hand. God is working through what appears to be just life and He is growing you into and where He wants you to be. This is encouraging because Peter, walking on water for crying out loud, still had a hardened heart that didn't get exactly who God was. And yet, Couple, couple days, couple weeks later, go on, and the Father reveals to him who Jesus is. And then later in Peter's life and ministry, he never arrives at a place where he's got to the end of his destiny and his purpose. No, he grows and consistently grows and does what God wants him to do that way. So here's my application for us. One, don't give up on people that you're sharing the gospel with because God, you, you and I need to just go to the Lord and say, Lord, I planted Apollos water. Lord, you give the increase in their life and I'm not going to give up. That's, that's the first encouragement here. The second one is, rather than trying to figure out what your next step is, faithfully pray and seek God on a daily basis, and work hard, and be a good husband, and be a good wife, and raise your children, and be a good example, and do everything you know to do in the day that's in front of you. Make plans, submit them to the Lord, and ask Him to lead you where you need to go. And you know what? He will lead you into moments of decision to do things, and who knows where it will take you. You never know. 
You might be a missionary. Some of you in here may need to go somewhere else, like another country. Some of you may just have this incredibly exciting calling to work for 45 years at the same place. And if you do it as unto the Lord, and you do it trusting in Him, all of that mundane life will be used by God to His glory. And you don't know how you're affecting other people. Sometimes the effect of our lives takes 30 and 40 and 50 years to, to get to the place where God uses it. When we get to eternity, this will make a lot more sense. We're trapped in the time we're in. But when we're in eternity, we'll be like, oh yeah, in 1985 I was here, and in 2035 I was here. So from this point of view, I see that God used all of that to create that impact over here. But where you're at in 2021, you're like, oh gosh, isn't there something else? Trust Him to get you where you need to be and get others where they need to be and ask Him to do that work. Okay, let's all stand up. I want us to pray this morning, and I want to ask you to pray with me for people that we know and you know. In fact, everybody just bow your head with me if you would. People, people that we know that are not serving the Lord or have rejected or have walked away, there's, a, there's all kinds of categories here. I want to pray for them this morning. I want to pray that they would have a moment. We're going to ask that God would open their eyes. So as we pray together, just call out the name of that person and ask God to do work in their heart. So Father, we come before you as we close this service. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it has for us and shapes us. Lord, we are asking that by the power of your Spirit, you would open the eyes of the blind. There are people we know, people that have walked away or people that have grown cold or people that have just totally outright rejected Christ. And Lord, we are asking that you would have mercy and you would open their eyes. We're asking that you would put us in a place where we would be a light, that we would shine like a light for these people. God, we... We pray that you would send laborers across their path. That you would send people that can witness to them and minister to them where they're at in the moment they need it. Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray that we would be that kind of person, ready in season and out of season, that whether it's at work or wherever we would be, that if there was a moment where we see an opportunity for the gospel, you would, you would encourage our hearts and strengthen us to be bold and to be courageous, and to share. Lord, we thank you for it. We give you glory for it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Church, you are...
officially dismissed. 